tell you what you're listening to welcome to father simon says on relevant radio with father richard simon i'm here to answer your questions have a question give us a call 1-888-914-9149 that's any question you may have about the lord the faith and the church that's 1-888-914-9149 this is in fact a radio show called father simon says on relevant radio Hello, I'm just turning down a phone ringer here. <laughs> Not going to catch me napping, as it were. Well, maybe. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the producer says he'll catch me napping. Let's start again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke and we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right. Let's open the big book on the coffee table. Hannah rose after a meal at Shiloh and presented herself before the Lord. That's interesting to me. Uh, why, why did they mention she rose after a meal? Well, since time immemorial, <clears throat> food and religion have gone together nicely. I call the, uh, you know, the eighth sacrament, the donuts in the hall after mass, the laying on of food. Uh, that that uh, why why is it that that there is so much eating that goes on in the Bible? I, I, most religions I know of uh, have food things going on. Well, that's because food is necessary for life. And the, the, the idea, and, and the voice in my head just said, food will get you to come to an event. That's true. But I think that there's a very deep significance. And in, 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 the, in the temple rituals, there were communion sacrifices in which you were eating with with God. And this is a very ancient thing that, that you eat in the presence of God. We see in the uh, uh, in the book of Exodus that the elders of Israel ate and drank with the Lord in the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai and that sort of thing. And we're still doing it. Just it's uh, a committee in the hall after mass. But I'm I'm joking. But but when you think about it, well, this is this is a good story. I remember, maybe I told you this one that I was uh, uh, an evangelical friend of mine came over to visit, and uh, I was getting ready for the confirmation uh, ceremony. The the bishop was coming for confirmation, and I I put out of course uh, the oil for for the uh, the the chrism oil for the the confirmation and wine and water for mass and of course the the host uh, the unleavened bread for mass and then a wonderful way to get oil off your hands uh, is dry bread uh, and and lemon 
it, it really does work. It's an abrasive, and the lemon cuts the grease, and uh, uh, that's the traditional way of doing it. And I'm putting out lemons and croutons, and it, he looked at me and said, are you making a Caesar salad? And I said, no, but close. You see, eating is is... Is 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 a, a person who likes to eat this will like hearing this. But eating is a holy thing, and the, at the at the temples, which we'll talk about in the word of the day, at the temples uh, of the Lord in Israel, uh, there would be eating. They would they would uh, eat a meal, and uh, it was part of the religious observance and part of the joy of it. So just. I don't know what that has to do. I, I'm not terribly hungry, but I thought I'd talk about eating and religion. I'm All right, she now. presented her. Well, the voice of my just said he's hungry now. Uh, presented herself to the Lord at the time. Eli the priest was sitting on a chair near the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Now remember, this is not Jerusalem. This is Shiloh. In her bitterness, she prayed to the Lord, weeping copiously, "O Lord of hosts." Now, what, what's host mean there? I've, I've shared that uh, in a word of the day. In this context, it means army. There are three words in Latin that are all translated into English with one word, host. There's hostia, uh, which means uh, uh, a sacrificial victim. There's hospice, the, the one form which is hospitis, which, comes, which means guest. And then there's uh, uh, hostis, which means, which is related to our word for hostile. It means the enemy or the army or, or a large group. So he's, this is, O Lord of the Armies. This would be Adonai Sabaoth, uh, Lord of the Armies. Look with pity on the misery of your handmaid. Um, if you give your handmaid a male child, I will give him to the Lord for as long as he lives. Neither wine nor liquor shall he drink, and no razor shall ever touch his head. This is the Nazarite vow. And this was essentially John the Baptist. He was a Nazarite. And uh, uh, there's a parallel between the child to be born, who we will see is Samuel the prophet, who introduces David and uh, uh, the, the, the prototype king of Israel, and then John the Baptist, who introduces the true king of Israel, Jesus. So there you go. Now, Jesus is called the son of David, and uh, uh, Solomon was the son of David who built the temple. But I think that, that there's a wider perspective on son of David, that, that in a way, this is the new and the fuller David who's being presented by John the Baptist. But there's that interesting parallelism in the scriptures. So this is the part that's interesting to me in this reading. Well, it's all interesting, but this is kind of interesting. Eli, Eli, Eli let me say it in English. Eli watched her mouth, for Hannah was praying silently. Though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. And Eli, which in Hebrew is Eli, Eli, thinking her drunk, said to her, How long will you make a drunken show of yourself, sober up from your wine? Remember, they had been having a religious banquet, which also involved wine. And uh, it, isn't, it isn't that, my lord, Hannah answered. I'm an unhappy woman. I have had neither wine nor liquor. Now, by liquor here, I think they mean strong drink, uh, because uh, distilling had not yet been invented. I, I should have looked that up. I bet the word is tirosh, which means strong drink. Um, yeah, look up the word. Yeah, the voice might just he look it up. What is the Hebrew word? Well, just what is that text? I've had neither wine or liquor, and I bet it's Yayin and Tirosh. I don't know, but I was only pouring out my troubles to the Lord. Do you think your handmaid a ne'er do well? 
Eli, my prayer has been prompted by my deep sorrow and misery. Um, go in peace. Now, the interesting part of this is she was praying silently. We we have no problem with praying silently, but in uh, times past in the world, uh, well, how could God hear you unless you prayed out loud? I was in a Vietnamese parish for years, and uh, a large part of the parish was Vietnamese, and it was pointed out to me that they they pray out loud. They they are of this mindset. So, uh, you know, that some of us pray quietly and some of us pray out loud. I would say, though, that we need to look at what the general instruction of the Roman Missal says. Mass, preparation for Mass before Mass should be a quiet time. Look in the general instruction. And if you're in church and you see someone praying, please go outside to talk after Mass. Uh, silence is not required by the general instruction after Mass, but courtesy does require it. And, um, you know, I find people very, very inconsiderate, not only of where they are, but of people who are trying to pray after Mass. And they should be allowed to do that. Go to the vestibule, go outside, go to the laying on of donuts. Oh, but I don't have the time. No, you'll have time to stand and talk 15, 20 minutes while someone's trying to pray, but you don't have time to go to the hall and uh, eat the donuts or go to the vestibule and chat with your friend. It's it's simply a matter of courtesy. But back to Hannah. She's praying silently, and he thinks she's drunk because people prayed out loud. And he said, may the Lord grant your request. And uh, lo and behold, well, she has a son. Uh, <laughs> her prayer is heard. And she called him Samuel, which means the Lord has heard. God has heard, rather, not the Lord, but God has heard since she'd asked the Lord for him. So um, this is a turning point. In a sense, this is the the 13th judge. There are 12 judges in the book of Judges, uh, 12 prominent judges of Israel. There were more than 12, but there are 12 featured in the book of Judges, and Samuel is the 13th, in a sense. He is the end of that period of Judges. Now, what was the period of Judges? It was that period after the um, uh, um, entrance of Israel into the Promised Land until the time of well Samuel. And that would this this is happening about 1,000 years before Christ. Uh, that's the ballpark figure for that. And uh, the parallels are uh, uh, the Trojan War has is maybe 200 years old. Uh, there's uh, unrest and, and piracy on the seas. And I think this would have been the era of the Sea Peoples. Uh, there's a great collapse of, of uh, I, I believe it was the Bronze Age. I, I'm not so clear on that. But it's a time of ferment in the world. And... What, we're, what we've seen during the, in the book of Judges is that all of the Philistines and all of these people are, are attacking Israel. There's unrest. There's political and military unrest. And, well, they're going to want a king to solve that problem, which we will see. All right, let us go to the... Uh, it's intoxicating. Oh, that, thank you, voice in my head. And do, what's the Hebrew word? Did you notice that? No, no, it would be Tirosh, I think. Low means not. No, never mind. I'll look it up in the break. Okay. Um, Jesus came to Capernaum with his followers and on the Sabbath entered the synagogue. This is Mark, the first verse, the 20, uh, 20, uh, first chapter, 21st verse and following. Um, Jesus came to Capernaum with his followers. Okay. That's Peter's hometown. And he entered the synagogue and he taught. People were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them with authority. 
and not as the scribes. Now, what does that mean? If you follow uh, Jewish reasoning, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the funny story about uh, rabbis asked, why do Jews always answer with a question? And the rabbi says, so what's wrong with answering with a question? That, that this idea, uh, Talmudic study, there's a lot of questioning going on and uh, quoting. You know, if you look at uh, uh, even Jewish synagogue service, they, they will constantly say, well, Rabbi such and such said. Jesus didn't do that. He would say, you've heard it's written, but what I tell you. He's very clearly speaking on his own authority. And he isn't quoting the experts. This is astonishing at them. They're astonishing them. And there was, well, it's easy to do that. Uh, <laughs> Lord knows I do it all the time. But a man with an unclean spirit came into the synagogue. And um, he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's interesting. And Jesus rebuked him and said, quiet, come out of him. It is very interesting to me that the demons know Jesus, know him to be the Holy One of God. In other words, they know he's the Messiah, and they, he's often accorded uh, the title Son of God by the demons. But, again, forgive me, I've shared this with you a number of times, but I think it's important. The devil never calls Jesus the Son of Man. And there's so many people who say, well, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. It's In fact, it seems to be his favorite uh, title for himself, the Son of Man. Isn't that an admission that Jesus is not God, but that he's merely human? On the contrary, it's quite the opposite. Because you see, the Son of Man is a celestial being about whom we read in the book of Daniel. He comes from the very throne of God. He's not simply a human being. He is one like a human being who comes from the throne of God. And Jesus calls himself this son of man. The demons never call him son of man because the demons are quite content to allow God to mind his own business and stay in heaven. But when heaven comes to earth, as it does in the person of the son of man in the book of Daniel, well, then the demons are in trouble. The devil is... is his kingdom has been invaded. You know, we read elsewhere in Scripture, the kingdom of this world, uh, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, that, that the devil thinks this world belongs to him. And uh, the title Son of Man is, is uh, a statement to the devil that, no, this isn't your world. It's, it's, it's God's world. So uh, this idea that the demons know Jesus, um, yeah, they know him to be the Messiah, and they're not happy because he's in the wrong place. They want him to stay in heaven, mind his own business, and people want you to stay in church and mind your own business. <laughs> uh, we don't have to go there, do we? All right. Uh, Jesus rebuked him and said, Quiet, come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsed him with a loud cry, came out of him. All were amazed and asked one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. Now, Authority in Greek is exousia, which means uh, it really means standing out in front, uh, being being out front. Uh, ex is from and usia is being. So the one who's in in the one who's in the lead, the one who's in charge. That's that's what 
authority means here. Um, sometimes it's translated into English as power, but it's more accurate, more accurately translated authority. Every rabbi at the time of Christ was expected to be an exorcist. If you watch The Chosen, you, you saw that, uh, the, the, the very first episode, which I think is one of the finest, dealing with the demons in Mary Magdalene, of which the Bible tells us there were, I think, seven. Well, the uh, um, this idea of, of authority, that rabbis did it with shouting and potions, one of the favorite uh, tricks, <laughs> now don't try this at home, but one of the favorite tricks of, of exorcists was to list all sorts of names, even ridiculous and fake names, uh, uh, that, that sounded impressive. Because if you could mention the name of a larger demon, a more powerful demon than the demon that was infesting your patient, well, it would scare the smaller demon away. And so they would have these long lists. When the Bible says, don't think you'll be heard by repetition, that's what it's referring to, these long lists. Uh, and so there are all these kind of tricks of the trade. Jesus didn't use any of the tricks of the trade. He simply said, get out. <laughs> and he had the authority to do this. Unlike the, the rabbis, he did not quote other teachers, and he did not use the tricks of the trade. And I have uh, seen people who are in a deliverance ministry, all that sort of thing, and they, they really do just, they have tricks of the trade, and they shout and jump around. Jesus didn't do it that way. He said, get out. And uh, um, I think it's important to understand. Now, the bigger picture here, which, which uh, one can miss, is do you realize that Jesus taught about one-third of the time. He healed about one-third of the ministry, and he cast out demons about one-third of the ministry. What do we do? We mostly just talk. We don't have power. We don't have authority. Well, really, we do, but we don't seem to use it. I think this is fascinating, that fully a third of the ministry of Jesus, as we read in the scripture, was the casting out of demons. Now, that's a guesstimate, but he cast out demons constantly. And People say, well, that was just kind of a superstition at the time. No, it, it wasn't. That's why I really recommend so often that you read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, or better than that, listen to John Cleese uh, um, <clears throat> reading the Screwtape Letters. Uh, uh, you can get it easily on YouTube. So I think that this this idea of of spiritual warfare, that... I look at the situation in which we find ourselves in the church, no matter which side of the, of, the, of the discussion you're on, and we forget that the scripture says very clearly that human anger does not work the righteousness of God, that, that uh, we're like the, the rabbis who use the tricks of the trade, we jump up and down and we shout, and that's not going to do a darn thing. But if we state you know, uh, our case with love and reason and truth, well, that gets us uh, much further along. You know, uh, if, you, if you are angry, you're not doing it the way God does it. And if you think that it's just, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, if you think that it's just against flesh and blood that you're warring, uh, <laughs> you're absolutely mistaken. It is not against flesh and blood that we war, but against powers and principalities. We're in a spiritual battle. 
and and mostly what we do is we use the 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 weapons of flesh think about it when i argue with you about a theological point and i get all angry and all upset and i yell at you you're wrong you're ruining the church you're doing this that's not the way jesus did it at all uh he he had authority he didn't need to ramp up the the volume or the temperature he had authority and I think that we need to understand what that means in a very practical way. That that I can do so much more in prayer than I can by shouting and raising my, my blood pressure and other people's blood pressure. I I can do so much more. Oh, it, that's just that's just wussing out. That's that's you know that's that's not practical. Oh, it's very practical because you see, if the devil can get you really angry at someone over over the kingdom of god you know if the devil can get you yelling at someone well he's he's won he's caused you to sin when all the time you're trying to convince someone else to be virtuous you're sinning you're committing the sin of anger so you know understand that the scripture means it when it says it's not against flesh and blood reward but against powers and principalities and anger does not human anger does not work the purpose of god the righteousness of god we read the letter of saint james so understand you have great power you have great authority but not using the weapons of flesh to fight spirits if we're fighting spirits which we are then we have to use weapons that are spiritual the devil is not susceptible to yelling screaming or or pounding of of fists on tables doesn't impress him at all what 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 scares him is when the son of man comes from the heavenly throne into the world in other words when we do it the way jesus did it all right enough well, let's take a break and we'll come back with letters i got so many letters we'll be right back 888-914-9149 do call in 888-914-9149 we'll be right back Today's programming is sponsored in part by St. Gregory Recovery Center. More information about their Catholic-centered recovery from substance abuse is available at relevantradio.com slash sdgregory. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. Yes, every day, let it shine. It is better, what's the saying, to light a single candle than to curse the darkness? Remember a Peanuts cartoon where Lucy's Linus is walking by with a candle and Luna's, uh, Lucy's following him saying, stupid darkness. Okay, well, um, you know, that discussion of the word for, for uh, liquor... It, the word is uh, shakar, which means uh, strong drink, that which that which intoxicates. And um, it's interesting in Yiddish, to be drunk is to be shikard. So uh, that's that's the word. I was wrong. It's not tirosh. Tirosh refers probably. I look should look it up. It refers to. It's another word for things that get you drunk, like beer. But that has nothing to do with anything I want to talk about, because right now I want to move on to letters. All right. Now, let's see. I've got a lot of letters. So if I haven't hit your letter yet, I'm working on it. So be patient. Okay. Uh, let's see. This is something I wanted to ask about. 
Uh, is there a good journaling study Bible for my 17-year-old daughter? She likes to take notes of what she's reading. This is from somebody named Scott. And um, is there a, is there a good you know Bible that has uh, wide margins that you can write in, or pages in the back where you can keep a journal? Um, I remember a preacher saying, if your Bible's too good to write in the margins, throw it out and get one that isn't too good. Um, you know, you can you can mark up a Bible. Um, don't mark up your mother's good Bible on the coffee table, but you know, if you got a Bible and mark it up, that's that's okay. All right. Uh, if anybody knows that there's a good Catholic uh, journaling study Bible, I would be grateful for the info. All right, now this next one. Um, uh, this is a funny kind of question. I don't want to be disrespectful, but when I can't sleep at night, I lay in bed and say my rosary. Uh, but when I, I sit up, I wake up more, I say the Divine Mercy too. Is it okay? Of course it's okay. My mother used to tell me that if you fall asleep saying the rosary, the angels finish it. So, of course, it's okay. That's like that question about uh, um, the fellow asked the the priest, is it all right to smoke while I pray? He says, no, my child, you should just pray. And then, is it all right to pray while I smoke? Of course, my child, that one should pray always. <laughs> I, I'm joking. Yes, it is all right to pray the rosary as you fall asleep. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is someone who's saying, why do you constantly diss on eagle's wings? The lyrics come directly from Scripture. Ah, they're an adaptation of words that come directly from Scripture. And why do I diss it? Because I'm so tired of hearing it. Maybe that's why that um, in, the, in, the, in the funeral circuit, the organists and the funeral directors, some of them that I know, call it on beagle's wings. And you got, it can't, it's not a valid funeral without on eagle's wings. Well... We used to have the same old Gregorian chant. Now we have the same old 1970s songs. You know, um, you know. I really do think that you know. And when people think when I when I pontificate all this, I'm against hymns at mass. I am not against hymns at mass. I think it is very appropriate to sing an entrance hymn and a recessional hymn, and even something that is appropriate uh, after communion. But the parts of the mass should be sung. You know, we don't again. Um, we don't sing hymns at Mass. We sing the Mass, and that's very different. Uh, it isn't um, the disjoint. Mass is meant to be a whole cloth, not a disjointed presentation of songs that I like, the pastor likes, or the organist likes, and most people hate. Okay, let's move along. Um, nothing to see here. Let's see. Okay, this is from Marion, Illinois. Uh, I was listening to your podcast on December 29th, that's a ways ago, you mentioned parading with the gospel. Why do some priests do this? Well, it looks cool. Um, in the, there is a bit of a, a parade with the gospel in the, in the old mass, uh, but in, in the Byzantine mass, they have great parades with the gospel, uh, which are reminiscent of court ceremonial in the Byzantine court. Uh, Constantine, I read once, started his the, the day off in court uh, by incensing the Gospels and reading a passage. Um, I don't know if that's true. I can't footnote it, but there you go. Sometimes, though, it is, it is a bit, I find it a bit ostentatious, uh, that it isn't reverence for the Gospel. It's sort of the person with whom the Gospel is processing, uh, uh, well, <laughs> processing. Um, 
if it's appropriate, if there's a distance uh, to the pulpit, it is liturgical custom to put the gospel book on the altar and then for the deacon to go up and get the gospel book and um, walk with the gospel book in front of him to the pulpit. That's liturgical practice. Uh, One can make it a little too ostentatious um, or one can make it too in, informal. So it, it's, this should be a happy medium. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, um, people who look at the mass more dramatically than others tend to parade. All right, let's see here. This is from Stephen. Um, why does God set us up to fail? Uh, his son's question, um, that, um, the same person who said his son, why does God set us up to fail? And I tried to answer that, forgot to mention in the previous email that he also finds God to be a hypocrite. He says this because, because even as he sets the commandment, you shall not kill. There are a number of instances in the Old Testament where God is depicted as taking lives of others. You know, Jesus answers this question when he talks to the Sadducees about the resurrection. When he says in the story about the bush... Uh, we read, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, for to him all things are alive. I can, If I kill you, I'm getting you out of my existence. That's wrong. It, God never does that. To God, all are alive. He may take you out of this dimension, but God doesn't kill you. And besides, God has the right to because he caused you to live and causes you to live. I am not the initiator or the, the cause of life. Um, God is. I don't have the right to take life because I did not give it. So God is not being a hypocrite. And as I always tell you, God has this problem. He thinks he's God. And uh, if you can't get there, well, you'll get nowhere in the spiritual life. So I hope that helps. Um, again, this is uh, Steve from Eau Claire. All right. What What's our time? I think I can do one more. I get so many letters. Let's see here. Oh, I wanted to... Oh, well. Okay. Um, one, I'm not Catholic, but one of my Catholic friends said the Pope himself can release souls from purgatory because the Pope has the authority to apply the extra merits of the saints to those souls still in purgatory. Even though my Protestant denomination does not believe in purgatory, my friend's response still seemed to be contrary to the teaching of the Catholic Church. The Pope does not have the authority to release souls from purgatory. He has the the right to to apply an indulgence. Now, I can only receive that indulgence if I am spiritually disposed to it. You know, Martin Luther made this point: if the Pope could let people out of out of purgatory, well, wouldn't the charitable thing be be to let them all out? No, it wouldn't be because you see, purgatory is is I I believe purgatory and judgment are the same thing. That process by which we finish being conformed to the image of Christ, uh, that that we are not fit to go into the light fully uh, unless we are conformed to the image of Christ, unless we look like Jesus. And what does Jesus look like? I always tell you Galatians, the fifth chapter, love, peace, patience, joy, etc. Until we, are, we, we, are, we cannot be fully adopted by God until we resemble Jesus. And if we have begun that process on earth and die in a state of sanctifying grace, 
then we believe that process continues until it's completed, until, as Scripture says elsewhere, we reach the full stature of Christ. Now, if there is an indulgence and, and, or someone's praying for me and I am disposed to accept that, then it is efficacious. Uh, if I'm not disposed, and I do not know the state of the state of preparedness and the state of openness of everyone in purgatory, uh, the Pope can offer it, but the the soul in question has to receive it and to be able to receive it. At least that's my thought on it. So the idea that the Pope can just release people from purgatory, no, I don't think it works that way. The Pope can offer that relief and we offer it by prayer too we're in this together looking at at the pope as some sort of grand banker that doesn't understand he's he's in a sense the father of a family uh, standing in uh, for for christ so i hope that i hope that's not heresy but if it is i would like to be corrected but uh, we'll go to we'll go to the word of the day by going to a break first and then we'll see what's up 888-914-9149 Don't leave me hanging. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus, I know what well. We've got open lines at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. But that said, let us go to the word of the day. The word of the day is Shiloh, (laughs) which is a word that means, oddly enough, uh, a place of peace. It can also mean uh, it belong may mean it belongs to him, but it's usually translated as uh, um, place of peace, place of tranquility, related to the word shalom. And when you think of it, that's kind of ironic when you think of the Battle of Shiloh in the Civil War. But I don't want to go there. But my fellow Civil War geeks will see the the irony of it that Shiloh is anything but a place of peace. What I want to talk about this Shiloh business is we talk about the first and second temples and the third temple. That's kind of a misnomer because the first place that the Ark resided in Israel was in Shiloh, which is to the north of Jerusalem and slightly to the east. Uh, it's in it's in the heart of 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 what we would call Israel, the northern the northern tribes of Israel, Ephraim, Manasseh, and um, we're going to see as the story unfolds that, that they used the ark as kind of a talisman. They used it as something in battle, and it was captured by the Philistines. And um, David, when when the Philistines returned the ark, David doesn't take it back to Shiloh. Shiloh was a a great cultic center of the Canaanite people before the entry of Israel into the land. And so it was a place of religious prominence, and that is simply where they brought the ark. 
Uh, it may have been remained in a tent, but the cultic center was this town of Shiloh. And um, David didn't give it back to Shiloh. He kept it on the border between the north and the south, just as uh, the District of Columbia is right on the border of north and south, supposedly. It's it's not in any single state. It's wedged between Maryland and Virginia. That was so that no single state became prominent. Uh, David did the same thing with Jerusalem. He didn't return uh, the ark when it was recovered from the Philistines. But when you think about it, the first temple really was at Shiloh and might have been a movable temple, but it was clearly located in one place and people went there to perform their religious observances. Then captured by the Philistines and then, oh, maybe 900 AD, it was placed into a temple in Jerusalem which was destroyed by the Babylonians around 580 BC and then was rebuilt and then re-rebuilt twice. So uh, when we talk about the first and second temple, really we're, we're getting to the fourth and fifth temple. I just thought you'd find that interesting because I do. All right, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. All right, yeah, let us go to phone calls. Uh, it's ringing, I hope so. Who have we got on the phone? Paul from Lincoln Hills, Illinois. What can I do for you? Hello, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Um, a little bit of a softball for you. My niece oh, good. and her husband, um, <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate it. Um, uh, my niece and her husband just had a second child, and it's a son, and they named him uh, Hesed Andrew, and they're born-again Bible Christians, and they kind of have their okay. own interpretation as to exactly what the Hebrew or the Jewish meaning is for the word hesed, um, but I hesed, remember you yes. used to teach it, so I thought I'd uh, ask. It's H-E-S-E-D, they said. Oh, so I know the word. I, just well. I, I never taught Hebrew. My Hebrew stinks, but I okay. got, learned a lot from Rabbi Lefkowitz, and I can tell you what hesed yeah. means. Hesed means more than the law requires. It can be translated mercy, okay. grace, Loving kindness, Recompense. but Rabbi Lefkowitz defined it as more than the law requires. Requires. Sounds good. Yeah. Thank you, Father. Yeah. God yeah. Bless. Hesed. I, what's his middle name? Uh, Andrew. Hesed Andrew. Andrew. Hesed and Andrew. Their, their, their first son, they named him uh, Corbin Polson. I guess he's a Protestant teacher or something. So, but, Well, uh, this korban means different. sacrifice. It's interesting. The word korban not Corbin, but Corban, mm -hmm. um, actually is the word that the Eastern, uh, the, the Middle Eastern Christians use for the sacrifice of the Mass. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I haven't quite broke that one to them yet, but I will make no, it. No, he Corbin. Yeah. All right, well, there you go. Yeah, and I hope they call him Andrew, because what are they going to call him, his? I mean, really. Uh, you know, right, people give right. names to their children that the children have to deal with. <laughs> Oy. Well, Andrew's a lovely name. <laughs> Chesed. I've never heard anyone named Chesed. Hmm. It can mean grace, it can mean mercy, it can mean loving kindness, but Rabbi Lefkowitz defined it as doing more than the law requires. So we have lines open still at 888-914-9149. What, well, before we go to Darlene, what is, what is the, we got a lot of people calling in about the, the, the study Bible. What is it? What is it? Ignatius journaling and what note-taking bible okay oh that'd be nice we'll link it in the podcast all right who have we got on the line now 
Darlene from Mesa. What can I do for you, Darlene? Hi, Father. I would like to know what is the difference between Eve's original innocence and Mary's immaculate soul? Uh, Mary's immaculate conception. Well, in a certain sense, nothing. Uh, I, I would say nothing because, uh, and there's nothing between the human nature of Jesus and Adam. You see, Adam and Eve were offered a perfect human nature. And and uh, uh, they said, no, thanks. You know, we always think of, I, I share this often, that we always think, oh, Immaculate Conception, that'd be great. I wouldn't have the tendency to sin. I wouldn't have the weakening of the will and the darkening of the intellect and all those other things. Yeah, you. but you'd have this huge responsibility of reflecting God in the world. I mean, our Blessed Mother was Our Lady of Sorrows. Think about that, that she was quite capable of of sorrow and, I believe, of pain. And and she the, the difference between me and the Blessed Mother and Eve and Adam, I suspect, is that I don't have a choice about it. I, I, I suffer pain without wanting to suffer pain, whereas our Blessed Mother could have rejected pain. She could have rejected her title as Our Lady of Sorrows. She could have rejected standing at the foot of the cross, but she didn't. Uh, th that's the big difference, I, I think. I, maybe I'm wrong about that, but but um, that's why we call her the New Eve because she she has human nature as God intended it to be. Does that help a little? Yes, yes. Thank you. I was wondering yeah. because I read somewhere that Mary's um, Mary's freedom from sin was a singular occurrence that hadn't ever happened before. Well, when so Adam and Eve, well, it, it had never happened before in in human history since Eve, I'd say. But people don't think of that. They don't think that, well, Adam and Eve were conceived without the effects of original sin in the Garden of Eden, in the mind of God. So, uh, you know, that, that um, no, it's the full humanity of Adam that Jesus had and the full humanity of Eve that our Blessed Mother had. That's why they call her the New Eve. So I hope that helps a little. And of course, take what I say with a grain of salt. So at any rate, thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. Who have we got now? Dear voice in my head. Trish from Minnesota. Trish, what can I do for you? Hello, Father. I'm calling to ask, someone just mentioned to me that they heard that the root word um, or they heard that the word for sorcery in Revelation 18.23 is actually the same word for pharmaceuticals. Yeah, pharmakia, yeah. Let me, what is the text again? Revelation? I'm sure it is. 18, what, Revelation? 23. Say that again. 18, Revelation 18.23. Okay, we're looking yeah. it up. Okay, oh, I, I I messed that up. Revelation eighteen, uh, I put sixteen, which is not the verse that wouldn't help at all. Revelation eighteen twenty three. Now we'll. Pop. I'm quite sure that they're right. It's pharmakia. I'm hearing music in my head. It's, oh, that's the the music. We're waiting for something. All right, all right. <sighs> okay. Uh, the and there's a reason for that. Uh, and it doesn't condemn pharmacy. The word is uh, pharmakia, yes. 
And pharmakia is, is, it can be magic, sorcery, enchantment, but it actually, uh, means, uh, herbal, herbal medicine. I guess that's how you'd say it. Uh, I'm trying to see if I can find the, uh, uh, um, the root of it. Um, I think I can. I think I can. Nope, I can't find the root of it, but it has to do with herbal cures. In the cures. context. In the context, in the context. Kind of interesting um, to think of it as thinking about nowadays. Um, yeah. Oh, sure. That it. Oh, yeah. You know that 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 ancient people knew plants could. Ancient people could realize that plants could alter your consciousness, and it was thought of as magical. Whereas the scripture also says in one of the the so-called Catholic books that there's there is no uh, drug which God has made which is which is evil. Uh, that that um, the there there is. Let me look that up. There is no drug uh, that is. Okay, let's see if we can find it. Uh, let's see. Oh, I can't find it. Um, let's see here. There's a wonderful Bible verse in the Catholic books There is that there is no harm uh, in, the, that, in anything except by its misuse. And, and if I could find it, there's no harm. In I, This is a good one that it's I got the, you'll forgive my wasting time with this okay no it doesn't say I can't seem to find it oh dear I hear more music in my head well if I can find it I'll mention it but in uh, uh, one of the one of the so-called Catholic books it says uh, the plants uh, are given for our health and there is no no harm in them if used in as as God intended them so uh, the idea that that somehow I've heard people talk about that that word being used in the Book of Revelations to say we shouldn't use medicine, and that's crazy. That that's so against the sense of Scripture. Does that answer your question? Um. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Sort of. If I could find that verse, it would clinch it. <laughs> Darn it! I can't find the verse. <laughs> oh, we're playing stump the Reverend Know It All. Oh well, what are you going to do? All right. If I find it, I'll mention well, it sometime. It. Okay. Uh, where is that verse? Oh, okay. Plant. Um, okay. We uh, have we got what? What, what are we? What are we doing here? Your voice in my head. Well, well, by the way, eight. I'm I'm going to go to a letter that that'll calm me down. I'm sure, and I have so many of them that I want to that I want to get to. Um, okay, uh, let's see here. I want to press that button, and now, oh, God, this is error. Humbug. All right, let's see here. Inbox, okay, press that button. All right. All right. We did that one about the Pope. No, oh, this is not great, great, great broadcasting. Ah! This is someone who just mentioned the old saw, which is so too. The true two seasons in Chicago, in Chicago area, winter and road construction. But I think that's true in most modern cities. So now we will go to um, St. Paul. This is from, not, not St. Paul, this is from Dennis 
in Austin asking a question about St. Paul. What is St. Paul referring to when he mentions the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15.4? Is it the Torah, the Mishnah, the Septuagint? Well, the Torah, what does Torah mean? Torah is the um, um, first five books of the Bible. We used to call it the Pentateuch. Uh, that was... Uh, uh, con it is considered by Orthodox Jews to be completely infallible. Uh, the rest of the scriptures are commentary, in a sense, on Torah. Then the Mishnah, that comes from the Hebrew word Shana, which also means the year. In other words, it's the turning. It's a turning. And the Mishnah means the retelling. And it is the, the oral law given to the elders of Israel um, to explain how to apply the the, um, the 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 rules of the Torah, especially liturgically, and the Mishnah was not written down until well after the time of Christ. You know, it was it it was uh, an oral tradition. What he was referring to is your third suggestion, Dennis, the Septuagint. Uh, that was the Greek Bible. There's a very interesting article uh, in. Uh, biblical archaeological uh, review. Uh, this was a few years back. Why did Paul go west? Very interesting. Uh, Jews in the west spoke Greek. Jews in the east spoke Aramaic. Uh, the dividing line was almost uh, the River Jordan. That There were some people, of course, a lot of Greek speakers east, but it would have been the Septuagint, what we call the Old Testament. So it wasn't the New Testament. Uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting question. The Septuagint, of course, was was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. It included more than is in the Hebrew Scriptures today, more than is in the uh, what, what the Jews would call the Tanakh uh, or the Masoretic text. Hope that helps. Any Anything interesting out there yet? Good. Dennis from Oshkosh. <laughs> Thanks for getting me off the hook there. Dennis, what can I do for you? Yeah, just a quick question. What is an unclean spirit? Ah, an unclean spirit. This is very interesting. An unclean spirit. I think, and this is my opinion, this is how I would read it, that uh, an unclean spirit... You gotta relate, relate to, uh, what Jews meant or what Israelites meant by unclean in the Old Testament. That if you were unclean, you were incapable of, of prayer. You couldn't go to temple. You couldn't associate with the prayers that you're supposed to say with the family. You were cast out of society and you were unable to be part of the communion of Israel with God. So an unclean spirit would be a spirit that defied God and made you unable to pray. That's that's an unclean spirit. Does that help? That's very good. Thank you. God bless. Take care. That's how I interpret it. A wiser man might have a better answer. But speaking of wiser men, <laughs> Drew's coming up. Don't go anywhere. Huh. Boy, there were some, some questions that weren't softballs. Ask Drew. Ask Drew. He's a smart guy.